The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. Today's episode is so important to anybody who is dealing with a chronic illness or was given a diagnosis or a prognosis that tells them their disease is incurable. My special guest is Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, a man after my own heart and on a similar mission as mine. He is the author of the best-selling book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. He's also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, no big deal and the Medical Director of McLean Psychiatry and Community Affairs at McLean Hospital. He's a licensed physician and board-certified psychiatrist. He also has a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. We cover so much, and I can't wait to dive in, so let's just get to it with Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. All right, so Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I feel like this conversation is a long time coming. Um, when I first, did your book come out last year, 2020? Came out just at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, perfect timing, right? right. <laughs> my friend, you know, made me aware of the book and I, I ordered it and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly my film, but through a much more educated scientific lens, you know, you've got your... <laughs> No, I just saw your film recently. I love it. It's fabulous. Thank you. I just think it's wild. Like literally at the same time you were doing your investigations and it's kind of that, you know, two different people in the same time in history doing the same kind of investigation. It's really cool to finally meet you. Well, I think that something's happening in our culture. And so I, it makes perfect sense that we might not know each other, but are working on similar questions. I think that we're at the beginning of a whole new era in medicine and healing. So it's very exciting. Oh, so exciting and so necessary. First of all, your book Cured, which I have here, is amazing. It's it's like I said, it's it's heal, but it's through a different lens and, and you go so deep. And I love your scientific approach and your, you know, the fact that you have history and you've been to medical school and you, you know, you approached it from a much more kind of critical thinking and skeptical place than I did. I was like, more spiritual angle, you know, which backed by science and you're the more scientific kind of skeptic. So I love that we arrived at the same place. Can you just tell our listeners, how did you come to explore spontaneous healings and, and possibility in healing? Yeah, well, that's a good question. It's been a long, very personal journey in a lot of ways. I grew up in a very rural environment on a farm in Indiana, and it was a very conservative background religiously. Um, my dad came from the Amish and so it's a very slow kind of evolution for myself into a world with TV and radio and store-bought clothes and all that sort of thing. So I was a bit of a rebel, uh, but I had a lot of questions as a kid. And, and so that drove me into college and then to seminary at Princeton afterwards with this burning need to answer questions. And I had the death of some people along the way. My fiance died in a car accident. My grandfather died on the same day. There's a lot of things that happened. And so 
by the time I was a sophomore in college, I needed some answers. <laughs> so <laughs> I imagine. So I, I went to, to seminary, had these wonderful mentors uh, who really helped me begin crystallizing these questions about how we think about the deep structures of the relationships between psychology and spirituality and philosophy of science and all that. And then once I realized that science isn't just the tool of the devil, I decided to go to medical school. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and the story on that is I, I was, uh, went back home to Indiana uh, to the little church where I grew up on and in, in my, uh, best friend's mom said, what are you going to do with all that education? I said, well, I'm going to be a college professor. And she said, you're going to get all that education and not do something to help people. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, wow. so, so my two worlds weren't meshing yet. <laughs> so once I uh, mentioned med school to people, the world I came from, that was something they understood. It made a lot of sense. It was something very practical, but it also in the back of my mind also gave me the freedom to have this day job, but also pursue my deeper questions on the side. And so it was kind of a perfect solution for all kinds of things. It brought my inner world and my outer world together. And so I went to med school and it was a great adventure and went to residency. And then after getting out of residency, I just started a new job as a medical director at McLean Hospital in Boston and a new faculty member at Harvard. And this uh, oncology nurse at Mass General came to me and asked for my help in explaining to her son that she had pancreatic cancer, which I did. And then she took off for this healing center in Brazil and began calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries and she hoped I would look into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I doubted that anything was going on there. And so I let her know that, but Nikki was persistent and has a lot of credit for how this last 17 years of journey has uh, unfolded for me. So she began telling people to write me with their stories from around the country and elsewhere and just let me know that they had these important stories. They had medical files that I could look at. Did I want to see what they had? And I continued to say no for a while, but people began to send me their files. And even though a lot of the stories made sense from within the paradigm that I've been trained in, not all of them did. And so those I began to look at more carefully, and that's what really started this whole project all those years ago. So wow. that's, that's really how it started. And then, <laughs> and then every little nugget on the trail just got you more deeper entrenched into this like mystery yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah, it really did. It's been an amazing journey. It's turned upside down every assumption that I thought I believed in, not only in medicine, but even in spirituality in a lot of ways. And so it's been it's been a really meaningful journey so far. And what I mean, you're so much more qualified to have this exploration. I was called to make heal just through curiosity and, and passion about I was just in awe of the human body and what it was capable of doing and wanted to figure out what is this thing called infinite possibility, what can we tap into? You know, I just, that was my qualification, just curiosity, but you have a master in master's in divinity and a medical degree. It's you're like, I'm just so excited that you're on this parallel journey and the book that you compiled in these stories, you know, one of my um, motivations for heal was to show people how intelligent the human body is and that we're designed yes. to heal in every moment and kind of the issue that's going on is we're getting in the way of that natural healing mechanism. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think that's really it. The yeah. body wants to heal and we just need to 
look at what it takes to set those conditions. So I think you're absolutely right on with that. Exactly. And then the second part of it, which you also beautifully lay out in your book is, you know, you have to believe that, that it's possible. You can't believe in the, in what a doctor tells you is possible for your life. So that's why you have countless cases of, you know, quote unquote, incurable diseases that were cured, um, which is the title of your book that everybody must read. And, and so, you know, in heal, we, we, we show people that, that have healed from something that doctors told this person that they couldn't. And you have many testimonies in your book of, of, and different ways. There's no one size fits all healing method. You, you explore all the different mm-hmm. ways that these different people arrived at the same kind of no evidence of disease and completely transformed their life. So oh, it's beautiful. I guess let's start with, I mean, you're a psychiatrist, you know, what are you seeing or how are you taking the, what you've learned on this journey and applying it to your practice now? Because there's this total epidemic of anxiety and depression, suicide yeah, is yes. on a rise. What are you seeing in your practice and, and how are you helping kind of raise awareness around what's possible? Yeah, that's a great question. So one way this works out for me is that I've been a medical director at a psychiatric hospital for all these years, but I've also been the chief of behavioral medicine at a large urban medical center as well. And so seeing people in their hospital beds at night and seeing people coming in with heart disease, cancer, diabetes, strokes, uh, gastrointestinal disease, all these different things, autoimmune illness, all these different medical illnesses, and beginning to realize that they're just the different face on, on other kinds of illnesses. These, we often don't think about how important our beliefs or our nutrition are in terms of how medical illnesses even work out in our bodies. And it turns out that research is now supporting that it's not all genes, like we were taught when I was in med school. Genes can be turned on and off by lifestyle and by nutrition and by lots of other things. And so it's not near as fixed as we were originally taught 15 or 20 years ago. So it's it's that. And so beginning to see that these factors are modifiable and can be changed and that 85% of the illness burden that people are suffering from these are lifestyle illnesses. And so this whole tide is beginning to change and we're starting to see that, wow, we can ask questions about how people heal. We don't have to just talk about diagnosis and medications. And that's a sea change in terms of how we were thinking even just 10 years ago in medicine. So it's a very exciting time. Yeah, I mean, you you say in your book, we operate on a model of pathology. We fixate on tearing down disease at all costs instead of building up flourishing health and immunity. And then we go into terrain versus germ theory, which is, I mean, as timely as you can get right now, yes. right? With, with, with <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 out right. there swirling in the world. And um, I think it's so brilliant that you bring in, you know, two things that I just loved was, you know, the father of pathology, Rudolf Virchow, Virchow? Virchow, yes. Virchow, he realized that, you know, he was all about the terrain. He realized later in his life, right, on his yes. deathbed. And then um, Louis Pasteur, who was all about the pathogen, on his deathbed changed right. his tune and said, 
the pathogen is nothing. The terrain is everything. So yes. it just goes to show like our bodies are designed to heal and we yes. have to maintain, understand that communication and community with our microbiome yes. and provide the environment and the conditions for it to be healthy. And most of us just yes. aren't aware. So we, we must come up with a new kind of education, not only of people and patients, but of, of medical yes. doctors and the way they practice. Yes. And it's so timely right in the middle of COVID right now, because we are being, COVID is exposing the United States and the UK and a few other Western countries around the world as being the sickest countries in the world. And it's because of the way we don't take care of our immune systems. And it's because of all these other comorbidities, which are the signs of a broken down immune system. So when we talk about, for example, heart disease or diabetes or cancer or autoimmune disease, we're not really talking about those particular diagnoses. At a deeper level, we're really talking about the chronic inflammation in their bodies that's creating the breakdown that causes diabetes, then heart disease and cancer and autoimmune disease, for example. So it's the chronic inflammation that's the problem chronic inflammation is the sign of an immune system gone awry. And so if you have chronic inflammation in your body and you have heart disease or diabetes or cancer or autoimmune disease, that means your immune system has gone awry, even though we call it heart disease or diabetes, et cetera. So the immune system is a really big deal. We are taught on the basis of Pasteur's germ theory, which you raised so well, that if you get an illness, if you have a pathogen in your body, whether it's COVID, or if it's some other pathogen, that you need to take your medication. And there's a place for that, absolutely. I prescribe antibiotics. I've seen antibiotics save lives regularly. I've seen lots of medicines save life regu lives regularly, but that's not the only story. The truer story, which you got at with uh, Bechamp and Rudolf Virchow, the deeper story is that we have millions of pathogens inside and outside of our bodies all the time. Those pathogens only become invaders when something breaks down in our system. And so the question is, if you have a pile of trash sitting in your kitchen floor, is it best to just keep waving away the flies <laughs> or is it better to take out the trash? <laughs> yeah. exactly. so healing your terrain is about healing your immune system so that you don't have to keep waving away the flies. And, we, and, and even though antibiotics and antivirals are really important, they also can help weaken the immune system. So it's, it's not just by accident that the research is very clear that the number of times a woman, for example, has taken an antibiotic trial before age 18 is a dose-response relationship to her risk of getting breast cancer. Mm. And so if you keep wiping out the brain of your immune system over and over again and keep having to rebuild it after you take these medications, you can get help in the immediate moment but long-term, you have to keep rebuilding your immune system and you're just starting over too much of the time. So it's, it is, the questions you're raising are really big questions and issues. I thought I knew everything there was to know about the immune system, but reading your book, I was, there was so many like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how you described how quickly immune cells, you know, I mean, beyond fathom, the immune yeah. system of our bodies are so intelligent. Yes. But what you need to realize is that the microbiota, the bacteria in our body has 2 million genes from yeah. ages and ages of being around before humans. And humans have what, like 25,000 genes right. combinations or whatever, whatever right. it is. And so we can't possibly 
store all the information in our own human cell DNA. So we right. need to be in community with these bacteria and yes. they're a major part of our immune system. And if we're wiping it out all the time with yes. medication, not only antibiotics, but steroids, almost all prescription medications will eventually wipe out the good bacteria and actually, yes. you know, have a detrimental effect on your body's ability to heal. So it's, it's yes. quite ironic, you know? It really is. I mean, my, I, I use my smartphone kind of as a brain for all kinds of things, for things I couldn't remember otherwise, you know, exactly. phone numbers and everything else. And it's like wiping out our cell phones over and over again. It's information that our bodies need to have a strong immune system. So it's a much bigger deal than just the cell phone. So That's exactly right. Yeah. You're not going to be able to call anyone if you keep killing the right. cell phone. Right. I love the other term you introduced to me that I had never heard before, uh, shockingly, uh, but you call it emotional nutrition because mm. we, you know, obviously everybody that's listening knows how fundamental nutrition is to yeah. their health. We still sometimes don't make the best choices right. um, out of habit or cravings or, or whatever, but emotional nutrition is just as important, if not more so than physical yes. nutrition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And you're so right. And nutrition itself is such a big topic, just the food, because we have so much misinformation about food. And I think you're out in California, so maybe you have a lot better access and information than we do out in New England, but <laughs> it's, it's still it's still an issue. So there's that, but you're right. Emotional nutrition is a really big deal. And it's just so true that when we are bathing the brilliant immune cells of our body in healthy, happy, thoughts that where a person where a person knows their value, where they know they have a purpose and they bring something important in the world, where they are in a parasympathetic state, that's a really different physiology for your immune system. When your cells, when those brilliant immune cells are being bathed in oxytocin, for example, the love molecule, or dopamine, the uh, pleasure pathway, or serotonin, which is more of an antidepressant molecule, when your immune cells are being bathed in that kind of chemistry, they're happy. They function correctly. They hit the pathogen and not your body. And so they wake up and are vibrant and alive. When you are giving yourself emotional nutrition that isn't really nutrition, when it's thoughts that degrade you at some level or, or that just torture you internally, that maybe you're not good enough at some level or, or there's something lacking in you or you're too much, those kinds of thoughts create a really different kind of physiology. And it's really clear when you look at the lab studies on this, when your immune cells are being bathed in norepinephrine or in other stress hormones like cortisol or adrenaline, your immune cells become sluggish. They begin to misfire incorrectly. They begin to target your body instead of the pathogen. I mean, it's really clear what happens at the cellular level with these kinds of things. And so, so you, you're right that, that emotional nutrition, where you give yourself thoughts that render the dignity and the value that you bring into the world as something you can experience, that creates a physiology that your immune system really thrives on. Yeah. And you, you even talk about perception, which I think belief and perception is everything mm -hmm. because as you were just saying, you know, the negative thoughts are beating yourself up, which we, all of us humans do. Right. There's a difference between the same stressor can be trauma, stress, 
to one person yes, and, or, or threat stress to one person and challenge stress to another. And it has right. to deal with their perception of self and the perception of the world. So if someone grew up in a household where there was abuse and she believes that the world is unsafe and she is not worthy, you know, the same task at work is going to be threat stress to her because she's going to feel unworthy and it's going to release all sorts of damaging chemistry into her body and wear down her system over time. And then another, you know, her coworker um, was raised in a house where, you know, good family values and and was raised with good self-worth. And and so he views that same exact task Yes. and the world around him is not a threat, but it's a challenge and an opportunity. And so he has like maybe stress chemicals, but it's a healthy balance of and, and, and totally sustainable by the body. And so it's our perception, yes. 80% of doctor visits is caused by stress, but it's your yes. perception of yourself and the really. world that delineates the impact of stress on your body. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I think you're absolutely right. When I was a wilderness trip leader, we would look for that knife edge of stress where the person could get maximum learning from the stressful environment. And we would look to increase that stress, but we didn't wanna go over that edge to where they decompensated or where it was negative learning, where they weren't learning, where they were felt so overwhelmed they couldn't learn. And so we need challenge stress. I mean, I'm a runner. I love to run. That You could call that stressful. and But it's there's some really good relaxation pieces of that for me, but it is stressful for the muscles to do that and weightlifting and all kinds of things. But those are great in the context of building a healthier mind and body and and spirit. And so you're right. Challenge stress is really different perceptual wise from threat stress, which can tear you down. So how we relate to that. When a person's abused, it's not so much the abuse sometimes as much as the perception or the interpretation they make from that. And so if a person walks away from an abuse situation and then decides, well, there must be something wrong about who I am or not good enough, or I must be bad or dirty at some level, then that's what really begins to sit in and cause trauma and trauma symptoms to, to settle into this, to the person. So, yeah. And, you know, we're another thing that COVID has revealed to us is that isolation and loneliness are, and, and there's been studies and studies for the past, you know, decades that are, that continue to support this, but loneliness is like the biggest precursor to disease. Yeah. We are social beings. And I love how you go into your book about love. I mean, I talk about it in Heal too. Love is like the ultimate healing yes. um, emotion and energy and, and kind of value to have in our environment. But it's not about yeah, I mean, when we fall in love, our energies are high. Like we feel, you know, and like we can't, nothing can go wrong where we feel vibrant and healthy and vital, but that's, you know, that's rare that, that in love feeling comes and goes. Right. But you talk about how important it is. These little micro connections every day, connecting with other humans and feeling those little micro hits of love, even with a stranger and how important that is to your immune system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's absolutely true. I think love is the most powerful force in the world. And when it gets blocked, that's when we experience pain and fear, I believe. And so we are wired for love. The vagus nerve is the super highway of the parasympathetic system in our bodies. And it's the opposite of the fight or flight system. Many of us live in chronic fight or flight. And we've developed an app recently. And I 
I'm sorry to say that I'm in fight or flight more than I'd like to be myself. So. <laughs> oh, wow. It gives you that feedback. That's great. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's part of our culture. And I think part of our evolutionary next step is to begin finding ways to use these higher aspects of our evolutionary biology and our brains to begin realizing that, no, it's not about competition. It's about connection and about cooperation and about authentic connection with each other. And so the vagus nerve is what lights our eyes and causes our eyes to when we make real eye contact with somebody. <laughs> it's what curves our lips into a smile. And so our vagus nerve operates the nerves that put us into a parasympathetic state and show what happens when we make authentic connection with others, whether it's someone we see briefly on the street or someone that we have a long-term relationship with. And all of those things really help us get into a more parasympathetic and healing state. So parasympathetic activation is not just about relaxation. It's also about connection and it's about sharing love in a way that's authentic for each one of us. So. And again, you talk about the vagus nerve. And I think you say in your book about, you know, there's a way to say how strong our vagal tone is. And, and I just talked right. to Deepak Chopra, who was saying, you know, the vagus mm. nerve is so incredibly healing and you can stimulate it with your own breath um, with vagal right. breathing. So we have the instruments in our body to activate our own healing mechanism. We just need to learn. It's all about awareness, you know, and your book really is a does. great great resource for that. And, and heart rate variability, you said, is the way you can kind of assess your vagal tone. So this is where we get science and technology and blend it with, you know, ancient wisdom and the intelligence of the human body in, in a productive way, not a kind of corporate profit pharmaceutical right. lobbying way, you know? Yeah, right. Well, this is a really, it's a, it's a big issue because, you know, Quantum physics has been around now for 80 years, but it's got such massive life-altering, perception-altering data that it's been accumulating. And it's been proving that the world is not what it appears to be and that we're not who we appear to be, that we don't really know what to make of that yet because it's such big ideas. So Newtonian physics, Newtonian science has been the science we still rely on. However, now at the beginning of this new era that we're going into, quantum physics is entering our life and entering medicine through Silicon Valley. And so now, because of these new assumptions that are going to slowly filter into our unconscious, we're going to see a radical democratization of medicine. We're going to see a whole different way of mind and body coming together because quantum physics holds them together and believes that you can't have one without the other. They're both really a big deal. It's, they say a lot more than that, but it's that's one place to start. <laughs> big deal. It is. So now our smartphones are allowing us to slowly become the CEOs of our own health. Because as Peter Diamandis says at Singularity University, because now we have apps that give us more and more and quicker feedback about our lifestyle choices and how that's impacting our body. We have sensors in the environment or sensors on our body. All that's going to completely transform medicine over the next 10, 20, and 30 years. And improve our awareness, our self-awareness. It gives yeah. us tools to give the feedback because the body is in constant conversation with us and we just have yes. not been versed in the language that it speaks. That's correct. And all of this and, you know, this interview and your book and is, is going to help us learn that language. Um, and I think it's beautiful. You, you mentioned Newtonian physics and, and talking about the love molecule and everything. 
you know, modern medicine is based on kind of Charles Darwin and Newtonian and Newton and Descartes um, and all of their philosophies. And, but I, again, just like Pasteur at the end of his life changed his tune. I think if you study in your book, you say, if you study Darwin's later works, right. his message kind of switched from survival of the fittest to love and survival of the kindest. Yes. And we've yeah. ignored that. <laughs> I mean, how do we just ignore that? That's everything. Yes. In The Descent of Man, he talks about specifically human evolution, which is very different than the evolution of animals. And, and so he talks about survival of the fittest, but he mostly talks more about cooperation and about love. And I, I forget the exact number of times, but he mentioned love like something like 95 times in the descent of man. So, yeah. so we took part of him, but we didn't take the whole story with Darwin. Not, not very Darwinian of him. <laughs> no. <laughs> Darwin wasn't very Darwinian. Darwin was not Darwinian at the end. Um, so, I, I mean, you have so many beautiful stories in your book. And I want to just, before we dive in, because I want you to share one or two of them, because they're so just, I mean, I was crying at portions of your book when, mm. you know, Matt's neighbor said he should go down to Brazil and paid for his ticket. And then he met the love of his life right. and he was told he couldn't have kids and he had kids. I was like, oh my God, so much is possible. But do you see as a psychiatrist and then going on this work, you know, on this investigation of spontaneous healings, do you see, or do you have an intuition about emotions and, and certain diseases manifesting in different parts of the body or chakra? For instance, I've heard it say like breast cancer often expresses in women that have neglected taking care of themselves and in the mammaries, it's, that's our nurturing, you know, organs. Um, and you know, it's just, there's no way to prove this obviously, but it's, there's, there's a lot of correlation. I think it's so fascinating. There was one guy that got cancer of his testes maybe. And Mm. there was, there was emotional trauma around partnership and sex, you know? So Mm -hmm. anyways, and I would just love to hear you kind of. Yeah, that's a really big topic. And so let me just walk around that a little bit. Um, (laughs) So as working in a medical hospital over and over, I can't tell you how many times when I look at the chart of a person before I go into their room and speak with them, if I see a woman who's had multiple abdominal surgeries, that right away kind of keys me in to the kinds of things I might want to ask about. Does she have a history of trauma and that sort of thing? And it's absolutely true, I think, that the body is often a metaphor for what some deeper part of us, whether you call that the deeper self or the soul, is trying to learn. And so the body really tells us so much. And we need to begin to open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear that again, because the body is a metaphor for what we're trying to learn. And so if a woman has had abdominal surgeries over and over again, it's not unusual that there's a trauma history there. And you raised about the man who had the testicular cancer. These kinds of things do raise questions. Now, I also want to also offset this by saying that we all have a complex collection of true and false beliefs that are very unique to us, to growing up in our particular home, the kids we played with on the playground, the different experiences we've had and how we've interpreted or perceived those experiences. And so as we grow up, we have a very different set of beliefs. And so one person who gets cancer may get that in the context of someone else who may have the same diagnosis, but it could be a very different sort of thing. And so we have to look at the 
the unique meanings for each particular person. I think that's really important. Well, let me say this. You mentioned breast cancer. A story I did not tell in the book is about a woman who is a story that I did uh, learn a lot from, and she had breast cancer. And in the context of getting better, she really went through a big change, kind of a metamorphosis of her own way of being in the world. She was married to a guy who I think loved her, but he, I think he was pretty rough. I think he was verbally abusive at times and disconnected emotionally. And she was very demure, very sweet. She... I think she spent a lot of her time taking care of the emotional needs of others. She spent a lot of her life taking care of others or or the needs that she perceived that they had. And in the context of getting better, she became more racy. She became more, um, I'm going to tell you what I really think. She became more, her personality became more saucy in a way, you know, and uh, she really, I think she became more authentic and less, she, I think she became more, willing to take up space in the world and not feel like she had to apologize for that. Or I think part of her being demure and very sweet was not feeling comfortable taking up space in the world and making problems for others if she needed to in order to be her authentic self. So I think, I think that was an important part of her healing. It's so interesting to me how often that a person has said to me that It took an illness for them to wake up and realize they needed to stop taking care of everyone else, or they needed to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others. Mm -hmm. And that somehow getting better was related to a major shift around that, to taking more seriously the kinds of activities that put a light in their own eyes or help them know and experience their own worth and value and feel comfortable taking up space in the world. And this comes across in a lot of ways. It's so interesting to me that when a person gets diagnosed with a fatal illness, whether it's cancer or something else, they might be terrified at one level, but at another level, sometimes the response will be, wow, if I've only got 12 months to live, maybe I don't have to go to law school because it's my dad free. Yeah. I'm free. I can, I can do what I want to do. <laughs> and right. that, that death of the false self, that sometimes becomes the doorway into a different life and then sometimes when they thought they were going to die, they don't. And so <laughs> raises a lot of questions. <laughs> I love that so much because what, you know, I've been thinking about for a while is, and, and you, you say the exact same thing that Deepak says in Heal. You say, you know, get the best medical advice you can, get the diagnosis, find out what's going on, but never accept someone else's prognosis because, and we'll get into this in a second, doctors are yeah. trained to stay among the averages, not get false hope. And, and there's many reasons why they have to do that. But with cancer specifically, and, and really anything that you talk about that people say is incurable or has a terminal end point that in the prognosis, you know, I just say, look, that, okay, something's going to die, but it's going to be your false self. It's going to be your old self. Yeah. Let the old self die. Let that prognosis apply to the old self because everybody that you encountered did a full over radical overhaul on their entire life. Yes. Um, or, you know, in a major aspect of their life. Um, but most of them did a combination and, and that's, that's true. It's like, okay, let, let the three to six month prognosis be to your false self and to the old self that is not your true self and is no longer serving you. Right. Wake up call. Yes. Yeah, that's a really big deal. And it's it's sometimes messy too. You know, it's hard to die to 
the beliefs we've had about ourselves for a long time or to the expectations we think others have had. Sometimes people have had those expectations. And sometimes in the context of healing, our friends have to change. I mean, it's it's not always Very, a nice, yeah. easy, neat thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> so. And, and you know, we say spontaneous, but it's more, you know, it yes. could take a long road and time and trial and error. And yes. Spontaneous in this context means without cause. And that's what we're taught in medical school, that spontaneous remission has no cause. It just is a fluke, has no medical or scientific value. Well, that's ridiculous. Everything has a cause. We just weren't asking the questions. Yeah, exactly. And that's Kelly Turner. I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, but she, she stumbled upon these radical remission cases and she's like, hello, why aren't we studying? Most doctors are like, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Or, oh, I must've misdiagnosed you or- Whatever it's like, no, let's study what there there should be universities and labs just focused on what these people, these you know, outliers did. Yes. Because, you know, they took control of their health. And um, and like Juniper, I think was one of your ladies. And she what what is AS? How do you say that? I know that Norman Cousins had it too. Yeah, ankylosing spondylitis. Yes, ankylosing spondylitis. So very painful. She dealt with so much pain, but she just followed her intuition through trial and error. She was led to yoga and she, and she's a beautiful example of there is going to be a certain thing of trial and error Mm -hmm. and, but you have to follow Your intuition is never going to lead you astray. And as you, as you keep following it, it gets stronger and stronger. The voice gets louder and louder. And she needed medication to get her like a bridge medication. And that's kind of my philosophy that what I've seen in these cases is medication. Western medicine is amazing for acute. If you're debilitated, you need something to get you over the hump so that you can even have the space to think beyond the pain to then follow your intuition and make better choices. But, but it, for chronic illness, the medication can only be a bridge. It can't be the end game because it's just going to continue to throw your immune system out of whack. Yeah, you're, I completely agree with you. Medicines are brilliant and they do save lives every day. I see it. I prescribe them. Medicines treat symptoms though. They don't treat causes. And it's important and compassionate to treat symptoms, especially in the short term. You're right. Juniper, she was experiencing this awful pain. She could not stand up without just, just couldn't even, it was mind numbing pain. And so she took pain medications for a while and that allowed the pain to subside enough that she could breathe again and think about next steps. But then she realized that the pain medicine was cutting her off from her body and she needed to be able to sense what was going on with her body if she was going to make next steps. And so it was right for a time and not right as a permanent solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about, I would love to pick your brain. And I think it's so helpful for people that are on a healing journey or have a mystery illness just to understand the nature of doctors training in medical schools and Mm -hmm. how we're at a very obvious point in history where medical education needs to evolve. So you say that medical school explicitly teaches to block out context. Doctors aren't trained to listen, you know, and you've developed a great listening practice because you're, you're more in mental health and that's your job is to listen. But um, just talk to me about the faults of medical education right now and why doctors aren't, they're doing the best they can with the best intentions, but their training and the system that we're in is just kind of holding them back. 
I think it is because I think a lot of people go into med school with really wanting to help people. And medical school is a very powerful paradigm and it does help people, but it doesn't capture the whole story. So for example, because we are just at the end of this era of disease and medications, what med students are taught to do and what we do as doctors is we go in to talk to a person and we purposefully exclude the story, the context of what the person brings, because we want to penetrate through to the underlying signs and symptoms of illness and make sure we get the right diagnosis. And so that's where the focus is. But the problem is the story that brings the person into the hospital or into the clinic is massively important for why they have this illness in the first place. And so just getting the story and understanding what this is really about and what's really going on in their lives, it changes the whole way that you understand the diagnosis. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen the way we treat a person differently once you get the story. Mm. And so it's not just about the diagnosis. It's about getting the story and it changes everything about how you see the diagnosis once you understand what this OCD or depression or anxiety or heart disease or autoimmune illness really is about in their lives. It, It just changes everything. And it creates all these opportunities for then intervening and healing the whole illness in the first place. And, and, and specialized medicine, you know, you, in, in medical school, you have to kind of pick your specialization, right? So, you know, most people are trained in only kind of one organ system or one aspect and they're not, you know, the story is so important, but also how everything's relating, you know, we just need a whole new upgraded kind of, medicine that treats you as a whole person. And that's just not possible with the health insurance and and the way it's set up these, these days. Yeah. There's all these factors that keep doctors from being free to have a more holistic approach. It's the regulatory bodies, it's the insurance companies, what they will reimburse. It's the licensing organizations. There's all of these things, plus the malpractice fears. Mm -hmm. If you step out of line from what the rest of the doctors are doing, I mean, there's lots of things that keep medicine from becoming holistic or democratized. So fortunately, there's a lot of pressures, including the pandemic, that are pressing in on that to help open us up as a profession. But you're also right about the body parts. We specialize in body parts. So even though 30 years of microbiome research and 30 years of research deep into chronic inflammation is showing that a person doesn't have a heart disease or diabetes or autoimmune illness or cancer, it's the deeper cause is the chronic inflammation. As doctors, we still don't ask about chronic inflammation and help a person reverse that because we're still thinking in terms of our body part that we're specialized in. So all of these things just need a massive overhaul. I know. I don't know how we're turning this tanker around, but you do talk about it at the end of the book, which we'll get to. So chronic inflammation is clearly at the bottom, at the, at the foundation where the, you know, there it's like the malware program and the software, like our software system is going on the fritz because our amazing immune system is just going haywire because right. we're just, we're, we're just messing up the lines of communication um, with stress, with toxins, right? Yep. Um, so, I mean, there's like, to, to change this whole thing, it's not just the medical system, it's 
getting legislation passed about food labeling and what's in our food yes. and what's what's passing as food. I mean, there's so many chemicals in our food yes. that we're not educated that they're it's literally disrupting our hormone hormones and leading to cancer, you know, things right. that are approved to be in food. Right. Can you expand on what's why we have this epidemic of chronic inflammation and it's expressing in all these different ways because of all this bioindividuality? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of levels one could talk about that at. I just have a, a friend. He is a physician and works here in, in Boston, but also uh, has a family organic olive farm in Greece. And so I've been invited to these annual trips to Greece, which are just fabulous. And I go when I can. But he, he told me recently that there is this tragedy unfolding in Greece because in the countryside and in the islands, people still eat the same kind of food they've eaten for hundreds of years. Very healthy Mediterranean diet. You know, you sit outside for much of the evening in these great, great restaurants and you're outside and you have fish and vegetables and wine and, and you sit and just laugh the whole evening and, it's, it, and share, your, share love over food with people. In Athens, though, it's now cool to get cheeseburger, french fries, and a Coke. And so, unfortunately, the rates of heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune illness and cancer are skyrocketing. And so, that's just tragic. And obesity. And so, whenever we export the Western diet to other countries, we see that the rates of disease skyrocket. And look at us in the United States. We're the sickest country in the world because of our immune systems. And the COVID virus is exposing that. And so this is fixable. But it does take a lot of information because a lot of our doctors and nutritionists and nurses, unfortunately, have been given a lot of misinformation as well. That whole trifecta of industry and paying academics to do the studies to get certain results, and then the lobbyists that interact with the government officials, that's created so much misinformation. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in Cured, I really try to talk about the differences and the similarities between all the nutritional changes that people make. And, you know, I was a really slow learner. I'm a physician. You think I would know some things about nutrition. I had, I can tell you the absolute upside down information that I was taught in medical school about nutrition. It was just completely upside down and wrong. <laughs> but it took me years to begin getting it through my dense head, listening to these people talk before I begin to understand, oh, there's a really different path here. Because I used to think I ate healthy. And most of the people I interview who are still sick, you know, in the hospitals I work in, they typically think they eat healthy too. And so do my colleagues. So we think we have good information and we don't. And so there is a lot of learning. And so I try to clarify some of those issues and cured. It is a really big topic. Yeah, we're, we're trusting, you know, the government and, and other entities that we think have our best interests, but they, you know, they're in their own kind of swirl of misinformation as well and getting yeah. pressures for their own job. It's, just, it's you know. Yeah, and I don't, it's not a conspiracy. No. It's good people doing their jobs, but having a very small piece of the picture and and not looking for nutrition as much as what helps your food line sell better, for example. And so, so the people I studied by and large, made big changes in terms of how much sugar they took into their bodies. They limited the white flours and began reading uh, what's really in the products they were eating. You know, 100 years ago, the average person consumed four pounds of sugar a year. On average, 
the the average American consumes 154 pounds of sugar a year. And so, so what we might call eating in moderation is so far off the charts of what our bodies were built to handle. So once you educate yourself, you can live a free and happy life and feel a lot better. You know a lot about nutrition and there's a lot of restaurants you can go to and you know what to order and, and you can share community with people and, and it really works in a way that doesn't get in the way of eating and, you know, being with people, but you have to really learn some things to get to that point. Exactly. You have to be aware so that we can make more informed decisions for not only our yeah. health, but you know, our consumer dollars are going to yes. drive the boat. You know, nobody's incentivized to, you know, make healthier soft drinks when you're making right. billions of dollars on Coca-Cola every year, which Coca-Cola right. is quite tasty, but sugar is quite addicting. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Not good for you. <laughs> um, so I want to read, there's so many amazing stories in here um, about people that you interviewed that have literally transformed incurable diseases. But um, these are just some of the one, two, three, four, five quotes that I'm going to read that you have. Mm. Patricia Kane, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which just blew doctors away when she transformed that. Um, if I had followed the laws of medicine, I should be in the grave 15 years by now. Juniper Stein, ankylosing spondylitis. I accepted the diagnosis, but not the prognosis. I'm just trying to like rally the troops here that are listening. Like, you have to pick up this book. Um, Matt Ireland, glioblastoma multiforme. I know there's something beyond medicine. They gave me up for dead, and here I am 15 years later. Oh, I loved his story. Yeah, I too. And then Jerry White, renal cell carcinoma. Remember that if you don't take charge of your healing, someone else will, and you probably won't like the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, these are, it's, it, if, you know, anyone who's listening, if you're dealing with something that has dire prognosis and outlook, or you're told that you have to be on a medication for the rest of your life, or it's incurable, there's plenty of stories of people that have done the impossible and, and cured the incurable. So don't buy into that. And, and, you know, so what do you believe? Do you believe that it's possible to heal anything like ALS? Like, I feel like Lou Gehrig's is kind of the pinnacle. Yeah challenge for me because it's so, so devastating and debilitating. And I've heard of people turning it around, but I'd love, I mean, I want to study that because it's, that's like, that's yeah. like a, you know, yes. Well, Susan. and you know, I think this is an unmapped terrain, right? So this is a wilderness that we need to do a lot more research in. What I do know about the human mind, it's so creative when it really puts its focus on things it really goes deep into things and we begin to see and create possibilities that hundred years ago just were not possible. I mean, we have jet airplanes now, we have cell phones, we have hot showers. If we put our mind into creating health and well-being and going really deep into this, we're going to be astonished at what becomes possible. Now, I've heard stories about ALS recovery. I have not documented that myself, but in some of my lectures, I do tell the stories about, for example, um, who is the um, famous physicist, Stephen Hawking, who died. So he was told at age 21 that he would be dead in two years from ALS. He lived for another 55 years and died at something like age 76. He died like a year and a half ago, or I think he died in February, maybe 
one or two years ago. And he attributed his longevity. I think he had a lot of support. He had some wives who I think really were caretakers for him. But he also attributed his longevity to keeping his mind active, which we know he did. And he also attributed to his longevity to a deep sense of humor, which he really believed in. And there's this funny story. He was on John Oliver's HBO show one night and they were talking. And I know some stories because my literary agent was doing a book on Stephen Hawking uh, when Stephen died. And so he knows the family and some of the stories about how it sounds like even though the ALS imprisoned his body in some ways, it liberated his mind in other ways. Mm. So in some ways, there is some people who argue that the gift that he gave to the world in part may have been because of ALS, Mm. because it liberated him in some other ways. But so he was talking to John Oliver. John Oliver said, is there a parallel universe where I'm smarter than you. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, Stephen Hawking says, yes, and also one where you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then John Oliver says, well, is there a parallel universe where my alter ego is dating actress Charlize Theron, for example? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the outcome of that in some form was Stephen Hawking saying, no, that's beyond the bounds of scientific possibility. <laughs> So witty. Oh my gosh. So, you know, there's, there is a story there with Stephen Hawking who was told he would be dead in two years and lived for something like another 55 years. Mm. And, and that's a remarkable achievement in its own right. Yes. And I think so. that, yeah. And again, it's who knows and and how can we explain, but time and time again, we hear these stories where you kind of surrender to what is. Yeah. And again, you just, you let go, you stop resisting and you, yeah. you take what you have and you just make, you just go, you know, throw off the false self and you're just fully you and do things that make you light up. And then all of a sudden you're still alive 20 years, 55 <laughs> years later, you know, there's a lot to research there for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, this is my spiritual life. Oh, um, <laughs> So you say we need another revolution now, the revolution of stories, stories of remission and recovering and life after illness, stories of how people got there. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so what are you doing now? What do you continue to do? What do you vision for the future? You know? Yeah. So I'm trying to decide what next steps should be. One of the things that people are, when they write me these wonderful emails, I'm realizing that I want to put something online so that people can go more deeply into each chapter and integrate it specifically into their context and their story. Mm-hmm. So people are saying these wonderful things about the chapters, but they need help going into each chapter. So I'm going to do that and I'm working on that yeah. and starting that. And also trying to figure out next steps. Um, we have a documentary that's being developed. There's a TV show possibly. I was just looking at some places we might go interview as part of that. I recently was introduced to the uh, Global Wellness Institute, which I've just now become familiar with. And they're doing some great work on wellness and well-being around the world and very internationally. And I had a friend say, well, why don't you put in a moonshot and see if you can really do something to bring health and well-being to a whole new level? So I'm trying to think what that would look like. What would be the most effective way to bring this message to people where people can take charge of their health, experience their value, and find their authentic self, heal their nutrition, heal their stress response, heal their immune systems, and create and where we don't have to be dealing with this burden of 
believing that the only solution is masking social distancing or quarantines, for example, or dealing with these massively rising rates of obesity and heart disease and cancer and autoimmune illness. And so yeah. this is so fixable and we just need to see this differently and yes. change the incentives change and get people in charge of their health and become excited about who they are and what their purpose is. Yeah. And understand like, you know, being obese is not normal. Everybody, yeah. the fact that all of, you know, chronic illness, cancer, obesity, all of these things are becoming normal. I mean, yes. a week goes by, I don't, right. not a week goes by that I don't find someone, you know, within two degrees of me that has gotten diagnosed with cancer. Yes. It's mind blowing. This is it not is. normal people. Right. So, so much normal. has to change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for holding the torch and leading a big part of the charge um, to changing this and and informing people and empowering people um, and inspiring people with all of these stories that you're sharing because Mm. that will strengthen the belief that it's possible for them as well. So I just, I I so appreciate you and your work. Well, and I appreciate what your work is too. You know, we all have a piece to do in this. And honestly, medicine has a lot of well-intentioned people who are so hemmed in by the paradigm that is powerful, but very limiting. And so we need people outside of medicine to begin to raise the voice and help us realize that there is such a liberating way to go about this. Mm -hmm. Amen, brother. (laughs) Um, Awesome. Well, so uh, yeah, thank you again for, for sharing and being so generous with your time and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. And if you feel inspired, we would love you to rate and review us so that we have the opportunity to reach more people. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Thank you so much and be well. truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.